This third panel is titled Youth and Politics. Like the morning panels, we will begin with a pre-recorded interview video addressing the theme of this panel. The big one will be environmental concerns. Climate change. Climate change. The climate. material circumstances and uh, things like housing, that's of course the biggest issue. So I think a lot of youth are right now very anxious about whether they can live the same sort of middle-class lifestyle a lot of their parents did. Cost of living crisis, uh, housing, transport um, increasing in cost. Domestic violence is a big driver of housing insecurity. We know that for queer people as well, migrant spouses are very dependent on their Singaporean spouses to be able to stay here. And when you tie housing access to marriage, it makes it harder for those people to leave situations that are unsafe for them. Social inequality. It's encouraging, right, for um, us to really envision and aspire to a world that we really leave no one behind. More and more, younger people are taking international positions quite seriously, right? And I think this is in the context of what's happening in Palestine and Israel. You see a greater awareness of where they spend their money, how they spend their money, what organizations are the money is going to. When it comes to the politicians, you know, the considerations can be very different and it may not be at the speed um, that we all would really desire. But of course, I, I think it's an ongoing journey. Many different ways, they have shown that they really care about the climate. I think the real conflict and the tension that comes about is when everybody has different ideas of what a good climate change policy should look like. We can see quite clearly how if we track the history of Singapore's environmental policy and so on, Right, energy policy, decarbonisation and so on. It's rapidly increased and I think part of that is down to the pressure from youth. But of course the youth will always say that maybe it's not enough. I think politicians will have eventually to deal with these issues. These young people, they can be quite well organised, right? When you talk about the Israel-Palestine debates in parliament, right? Prior to the parliamentary sitting, there was a lot of letter-writing campaigns and things like that. A lot of it feels quite patchwork or putting like a band-aid on like a gushing wound. If we're talking about like LGBT inclusivity, so that's this idea that we're meant to be balanced against other interests rather than being seen as like whole and full participating citizens of the same society. Eighteen and I personally would go as far as sixteen. Nineteen. I haven't heard one good reason why the voting age shouldn't be lowered to 18. The closest thing to a good argument in that aspect, you said, oh, people have not uh, reached a certain level of maturity. La. And the question is, are you very mature when you're 40 years old, 50 years old? Have you seen some of the 60 year olds? The idea is that you should be able to participate in decisions about the people who make decisions about your lives, right? And at 21, it's a bit old because at 18, you're already tried as an adult. You're already subject to laws. I think at 19 years old, it's also the 
key age when they are making other important life decisions like for example choosing their course in university, deciding their future life trajectory as well as going to national service and holding military weapons. I guess lowering the voting age or getting people to vote early affords them an early political education. That's really when you get involved in the electoral process and really feel the buzz of elections and really feel like the responsibility of your vote. That, I think, is a sort of pedagogy for a good citizen. I feel that right now we are comfortable at where we are. But I mean, of course, uh, I don't deny that there could be change uh, in future. Well, no, but I also don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that this is going to be solved by diversity and inclusion initiatives at the surface level. Because I think the political system has always paid lip service to that. We know that the GRC system has always ensured racial representation. In the past few elections, there's been more emphasis on gender. The next GE, I would not be surprised if the PAP debuted their first like openly gay MP or something like that. I think we all need to be more cognizant of the ways that symbolic inclusion can mask systemic exclusion. Foreign workers, sex workers as well as the homeless are generally not that well represented in our society. It's very important for the government to engage civil society organisations that are working on the ground and amplifying their stories and their voices. We have seen many MPs in parliament, right, both from the ruling party and from the opposition, speak up on issues that do not even affect voting populations. Like for example, you have seen uh, many MPs speak up about how migrant workers are being treated, how domestic helpers are treated, right? Like we spend a lot of time debating the case on Patiliani and the criminal justice system. I think we should move away from the idea that proportionality equals representation. The politics in the last 10, 15 years has been moving, right, in terms of the MPs and so on that you really get a recruitment from a large range of industries, of walks of life and so on. So in that sense, there is this sort of representation. I think the jury is still out whether that leads to better political communication, whether that leads to the better forming of policies, and whether that influences the direction of politics. Sometimes you may have a white representation, but they may not have actually that depth to actually um, tackle and have the expertise um, to look into a specific area. So I think it's really about having balanced representation. I think we have in the political system mechanisms uh, that allow for participation of people who represent different sectors. I think very much with the NMP, they are being nominated by that group, being able to be that voice for that particular area and sector. This um, very interesting asking from a young PAP perspective. I think what we need to recognise and acknowledge being um, Singapore is that we also have certain constraints and limitations. I believe it, it should be an answer that we all shape together to kind of define what is that right balance of having um, that right of representation that allows us to be representative and be able to address um, the key issues that are important for Singapore to succeed. At the same time, I think we also need a political system that is stable. I think majority of Singaporeans, they want greater check and balance, but at the same time, they want stability when it comes to government. Right? And I think even the larger political parties, opposition parties, they recognise this. And it's quite clear in terms of how many candidates they feel. I think there will be a greater appetite for more political diversity in Parliament. 
critically plural in terms of different parties, I'm not so sure that might not be very helpful. In fact, change political pluralism can take change can take root within parties as well. If we mean that there's a greater diversity of attitudes, of different political viewpoints, and so on, then I think it's more or less inevitable. The way that society, the way the world is moving, and how exposed Singapore is to global trends to have a greater political diversity. Yes, I think we all can agree that the role of the opposition is very important in Parliament and I don't believe in own self, check own self. I think the political opposition in Singapore has proved that they are speaking up on issues that may not be adequately raised up by other members of Parliament in the ruling party. I don't have very strong feelings about partisan politics. I think in Singapore, the fundamental issue is that we still think of politics as a very elite-driven sphere. It's a very narrow place and only very few people participate in it, right? I think one of the concerns that I have more and more is because we expect outcomes relatively fast in the world that we are living today, but the reality with you know policy changes, with how things really impact society, how policy shapes behaviour, I think all these things take time. So where I uh, would like to see a political system evolving is where really go into depth and rigour of us being able to explore our very own way of shaping success uh, for our next generation. I think there are also a lot of youths out there whom I have engaged expressing that they are fearful of expressing their viewpoints because of fear of backlash or getting blacklisted by the government which in my opinion is a net loss for Singapore because some of these viewpoints would help us to create very much more nuanced climate policies. We have seen that groups with differing political viewpoints would get not invited to policy dialogues or engagements with the government. I think the main ways in which people are asked to participate are either you vote once in a while or sometimes there's government-led consultations. But often those feel like when you're going in, there's already a foregone conclusion. Things that are more organically organised, so like things like student groups or when civil society holds their own conferences, protests are like completely out of the question. Um, they're usually treated with more suspicion. Um, and I think I would wish that our political leaders would be able to trust that we're able to have difficult conversations among ourselves and to make decisions to express how we want to live our lives. There should be a development of public intellectuals in Singapore in international issues. The main people that comment nowadays, and I read and I enjoy the commentaries around people like you know, Bilari Kosikan, Chaning Chi, Kishon Mabubani and so on. But they're the same people that used to comment in the 90s, right? So I think there is the need for infusion of fresh blood. I just hope to see a greater diversity in Parliament, not in terms of just the makeup, but also in terms of diversity amongst the slate of candidates. You know, we should see more candidates from working class groups, from more diverse backgrounds. Like for example, I think maybe we need to have our first openly LGBT candidate. When you have diversity, when you have a robust contestation of ideas, whatever comes out of Parliament will be more aligned and more geared towards serving Singaporeans better. In this panel, speakers will explore why young Singaporeans have different political priorities than previous cohorts. The chairperson of this panel is Dr. Teo K. Kee, Research Fellow of the Institute of Policy Studies Social Lab. She will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. May I now invite members of the panel on stage, please?
thank you everybody. I hope you guys had a good lunch. And we are here at the next panel, which is on youth and politics. So I think we have seen from the video that there are actually quite a lot of different and diverse views from youths today. And that probably will go against uh, the usual idea that you know, youths today are political politically apathetic. And so here we have uh, with us today three uh, of esteemed speakers who hopefully will be the fresh blood that uh, one of the interviewees in the video was talking about, uh, who will be spending the time talking to us a bit about youth and politics. Uh, first on, we will have Dr. Elvin Ong, who is Assistant Professor at NUS at the Political Science Department. Then Dr. Mustafa Izudin, who is also teaching at NUS, as well as Mr. Ng Sun Kiet, who is Assistant Editor uh, at Lin He Zaobao for the local politics and defense news. And so let's take it away, Alvin. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you all for taking time and effort to be here. And thank you to IPS and the organizers for inviting me. Uh, when they invited us to this panel, uh, IPS told us to see if we can talk about three topics concerning youth and politics. Uh, they are youth political attitudes towards pluralism, satisfaction with political and electoral system, and potentially our ideas about electoral system reform to lowering the voting age to 18 years old. So as a political scientist who teaches research methods at NUS, I thought I could provide some value to the panel and to the audience here uh, by bringing together some data on political opinions in Singapore and conducting some statistical analysis on what the data tells us. So today I'm going to use data from the World Value Survey and the IPS Post-Election Survey to do some analysis. Now, you may be wondering why I choose these two data sets uh, to analyze, given that the surveys were done almost four years ago, and aren't they a bit outdated? Well, there are many reasons, uh, but there are two main reasons. Uh, first, as a lowly assistant professor with no connections and access to proprietary public opinion data sets, uh, these two data sets are the best I can get. Uh, they are sampled from a nationally representative sample and are publicly accessible in the raw data format. So this allows us to make accurate inferences using the appropriate statistical model. Um, secondly, uh, these surveys were conducted by IPS themselves. So if you don't like the survey results, go find IPS, don't come to me. Yeah? And finally, today, after presenting the results, uh, I want to share some hypotheses on why we see the results that we have. And depending on the hypothesis that you think is right, the takeaway that you get from the results will be quite different as well. Now, in these surveys, there are actually hundreds of questions, and we have limited time. So my strategy is to select six questions from the surveys to analyze them. Now, the first main goal is to try to analyze is if there is a difference between the entire broad category of use as compared to non-use, right? anybody who's above 35 years old. And the second main goal of my analysis is to try to analyze if there's a difference within the broad category of use as compared to non-use. So in the next few slides, I'm going to present a couple of graphs, and they're going to be a little bit technical, so please allow me to explain a bit more. Um, they are going to show the difference between these groups based on simple OLS regression models. And there'll be two sets of regression models, one that's that does not have controls, and one that has demographic controls. Now, the models with demographic controls, you can think of as slightly more accurate. 
because they are estimating the difference between these groups by holding constant all these other demographic variables. Now, please don't think uh, these fancy terms like OLS regression models are very complicated things. They're actually very simple, and I am actually currently teaching my NUS undergraduates how to run these analyses. So if anyone knows uh, and is interested, if you email me, I'm happy to share the R code to reproduce these results. Uh, but if you don't know this, uh, you can use your SkillsFuture Fund to sign up for a, a summer method school, uh, which I run at NUS and which teaches these uh, social science research methods. The first question I'm going to analyze is where they ask survey respondents to place their own political ideology on a left-right scale, with one being the most left and 10 being the most right. Now let us first focus on the top two point estimates here in the graph. The black point estimate, which is the regression model with controls, tells us that there's a minus 0.75 point difference between all youths and non-youths who are above 35 years old. Uh, what this means is that the youths, on average, see themselves as consistently more left at the minus 0.75 as compared to non-youths. And this difference is statistically significant because the 95% confidence intervals at bar does not uh, overlap with the red vertical line at zero. Now let us look at the next set of blue and green point estimates. They tell us something more. And they tell us that there's differences within the youth themselves. It is the 21 to 25 years old uh, that are most left with about minus one point as compared to non-use. But as you get older, the more youths converge in their political ideology to the non-use. And we can see in the last category of use, uh, senior use, in 30 to 35 years old, that the point estimate has 95% confidence con intervals that overlap with the red vertical line, uh, which means that there's no statistical difference between uh, them and the non-use above 35 years old. Now, remember this gradient pattern, right, that we see uh, between uh, the different category of use, because we'll see it as some other questions as well. The second question asks respondents, how much do you think the political system allows people like you to have a say in what the government does? And this is a five-point scale from no say at all to a lot of say. Again, we can see in the overall category of use, there's a statistically significant difference between them and non-use at minus 0.15. And from the next set of results, we can see again that this difference is actually driven by the youngest category of use at 21 to 25 years old, and they are the ones really pulling everyone leftwards. And you can see that uh, for the older senior youth uh, in 25 to 30 years old and uh, youth in 31 to 35 years old, there's actually no statistical difference. Third question, how satisfied are you with the current functioning of the political system in Singapore? Again, youths are much less satisfied with a minus 0.5 difference between them and non-use. And this time, surprisingly, we see that there's less satisfaction consistently across all categories of use. We don't see that gradient uh, uh, within uh, the youth category. Fourth question, do you agree that the election system as a whole is fair to all political parties? Now, this is a binary outcome, whether you agree that it's fair or you disagree that it's not fair. So we can interpret the point estimates uh, in terms of percentage terms. And what we can see here is, again, youths have a tendency to have less agreement 
that the election system is fair to all political parties as compared to non-use. But this difference is not statistically significant uh, if you include the demographic controls. But again, if you disaggregate this big youth category, you can see the pattern repeated here. It is the 21 to 25-year-old youth that are pulling the results for everyone else. They are 10% less likely to agree that the election system is fair. Fifth question, do you agree that there is no need to change the election system? Here we see a minus 10% agreement among use in general as compared to non-use. And again, we see the second pattern gradient there, right? Where it's the 21 to 25 years old, the 26 to 30 years old, that is pulling everyone else uh, towards the left. Sixth and final question, do you agree that it's always important to have elected opposition in parliament? Uh, now we can see, as expected, youth as a whole are more likely to agree that it is always important to have elected opposition, but unexpectedly, it is the 26 to 30-year-old and the 31 to 35-year-olds who are doing the polling. Right? They are the ones who are saying it's really important to have elected opposition in the parliament relative to non-use and uh, much more than the youngest youth category. So all in all, what we see from survey results is that there's persistent difference between use as a whole and non-use. They are less satisfied with the political election system and they desire to change it. But we also see some difference when we disaggregate that big category. The youngest use are the most left and unsatisfied. The medium use are moderately left and unsatisfied. And the senior use are the least left and unsatisfied. And we see that these differences persist with or without controls. And so this youth effect still lingers. So now that we have established this pattern, the next question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why do we see such patterns in the data? And we can develop a few hypotheses. Well, the first hypothesis is the idea that it simply reflects the life stage of people. Youths all over the world are naive, lack life experience, they don't know better. So sooner or later, when they get older, they'll smarten up and make the right choice. Now, if you believe in this hypothesis, then there is nothing for the government to do, right? Things can stay in the status quo. The second hypothesis is that youths are dissatisfied because of the government's lack of attention and substantive reforms to issues that youths care about. Now, then, these may be issues like climate change, mental health well-being, income and wealth inequality, the treatment of foreign workers. Uh, if you believe in this hypothesis, then you would think that the government has actually made some progress in substantive reforms to these various issues over the past few years, and perhaps we can see youth satisfaction with the political system increase over the next few years. Lastly, the third set of hypotheses is that youth are dissatisfied because they feel underrepresented in politics. Uh, this may be because Singapore is an aging society, they comprise a smaller share of the voting electorate, or because there are not many youthful politicians to begin with to represent their interests. Now, if you believe this, then maybe lowering the voting age to 18 years old can make use a larger share of the voting electorate, and, giving them, and it can give them a stronger voice in parliament. But here I want to suggest two alternative perspectives. Uh, rather than seeing the underrepresentation uh, of the political influence of youth solely in terms of their demographic vote share, I want to suggest that they may be underrepresented or potentially misrepresented in other ways. Now, this graph shows 
the seat share and vote share of the PAP in every single general election over time. Now, if we assume that youths are more likely to vote for the opposition, then I think you can understand why they feel underrepresented or misrepresented. Every election, approximately 30 to 40% of the electorate votes for the opposition. But the opposition only gets about 2 to 10% of the seats in parliament. Can you imagine how frustrating that might be? That means in every election, the votes of about one quarter to one third of the entire Singapore population are routinely mistranslated. So if you want to increase youth satisfaction and overall population satisfaction with the youth, uh, with the political and electoral system, we can consider some electoral reforms to decrease the disproportionality and mistranslation of votes. This final graph shows the number of voters per MP in our legislature across every single general election. And this number has approximately doubled from around 14,000 voters per MP in the early years of Singapore's independence to approximately 28,000 voters per MP now. So now, if we assume that each MP has a finite amount of time and effort, then more and more constituents per MP means that they can spend less and less time and effort to engage with the various issues of the day uh, per constituent, including youth issues. Ultimately, our MPs may be overworked. So before we think about expanding the number of voters by lowering the voting age to enhance representation, maybe it might make more sense to actually just expand the number of MPs to reduce their workload to enhance representation instead. So to conclude, we can potentially lower the voting age to 18 to enhance youth satisfaction with the political system by giving them a more powerful voice. But I think we can also consider other means such as enhancing the proportionality of the vote and seat share in each election, and by reducing the number of electors per MPs by having more MPs. Uh, thank you for your time, and I'll pass it on. Thank you, Alvin. So, we have Mustafa next. Please. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to begin by thanking the Institute of Policy Studies, or IPS for short, for this kind invitation to share my thoughts on this timely and pertinent topic on youth and politics. I started as an intern at IPS a decade ago. So that tells you a little bit about my age. So it's a nostalgic homecoming for me to be a part of IPS's annual Singapore Perspectives. I'm also delighted to be here because although I have crossed the youth barrier, uh, to be able to discuss on youth issues uh, keeps me young at heart. So I'm very happy and delighted to be here. I'd also like to give my kudos to the youth who expressed their views and sentiments so lucidly and candidly on the video clip we watched just now. That it necessitates us to listen, reflect, and ponder upon. They deserve all the plaudits that will come their way. Drawing on my experience in youth work for over two decades, and my views being informed by my political science background. I will make three points, and one more bonus point if I have time, within the 10 minutes that's allocated to me. Rather than provide statistical evidence, which Elvin did uh, very well, uh, for me, I'll be presenting more anecdotal evidence and based on personal experience. The first is about youth diversity. I think we've heard the word diversity quite a lot of times, but 
it bears uh, reiteration because when we talk about politics, we have to talk about youth diversity. To both recognize and celebrate youth diversity because young people in Singapore are not monolithic. They are not a single homogeneous demographic. You have a couple of generations as well. You have Generation Y, Generation Z. And in each of those generations, you have diversity. So across those generations and within those generations, so we need to recognize that there is diversity. And what kind of diversity? Diversity in terms of their views, their interests, their values, their preferences. In fact, the more diversity there is, the healthier it will be for Singapore politics, and particularly when it comes to policymaking. The second point concerns youth centrality in Singapore politics. I would suggest two ways. The first encompasses domestic policy that specifically impact young people, while the second is being involved in political issues through institutions and organizations, including being part of arms and wings of political parties, or in an unstructured manner. In terms of trend lines, it is my opinion that we are likely to see a greater proliferation of informal networks talking about political issues, especially through the use of social media platforms to champion social political causes rather than gravitate towards established organizations. Or what sometimes may happen, it starts off as an informal network become, before it becomes a formal organization talking about social political issue and making an impact. One other trend line we are likely to see magnify exponentially is the proclivity among youth for global consciousness over national consciousness or a symbiotic intersection between the two consciousness. As was elucidated in the video as well, young people are more likely to view national issues through global lens and embody an enlightened self-interest by playing the role of a good international citizen, such as on issues pertaining to climate change, sustainable development, social justice, global inequality, among others. The third is about youth engagement by underscoring the importance of youthening the social compact. Social compact here is, a, as a way of a definition, an implicit agreement or social contract between the government and the people in terms of each other's roles and responsibilities. Because as a collective, it helps to enhance social capital and foster political trust. Youthening the social compact suggests the refreshing of the social compact by placing the youth as its sinusoid or focal point. Part of negotiating the social compact is the evolving nature of engagement with young people. First, it is no longer I say, you accept, but rather how do we get to we say, we accept. Second, the more questions being asked by young people, demonstrating their inquisitiveness, the more robust the political engagement will be in a positively profound way. Third, as has been often mentioned, but worth reiterating, it is important to listen to young people and believe in them to be the change they would like to see in Singapore, both socially and politically. One discernible trend line, perhaps somewhat contentious, somewhat contentious is that newer generations, as newer generations come to be, the less connected they will likely be to the history of Singapore. That is not to say that history is not important, and we should certainly understand and appreciate our history. But for young people to be more actively engaged in the political sphere, their engagement should be focused more on the contemporary, 
which will likely increase the relatability of young people to political issues. A second trend line is the youth Instagrammer, right? Or consumption of inf information through Instagramization. And as it is relevant here, Instagramization refers to the cultural phenomena of how the political behavior of young people are changed by the use, reach, and influence of Instagram, or more broadly, social media platforms. Therefore, youth political engagement has to encompass the leveraging of digital technology through social media. The fourth and final point relates to youth empowerment. For youth politics to be effective and sustainable, young people need to be empowered to engage in politics and have a stake in their future. It's along these lines, and as was alluded to in the video clip earlier, we can think of empowering youth politics through the lowering of the voting age in Singapore. It is my opinion with the transition taking place from the 3G to the 4G political leadership, and as parliamentarians get younger in age, it is only a matter of time before the voting age is lowered from 21 to perhaps 18. Rather than rush through it, however, it is important to undertake studies and hold consultations to gauge the appetite for the lowering of the voting age. The more cohesive the critical mass clamoring for the lowering of the voting age, the more likely this change will take place. It's also worth discussing what this lowering of voting age may entail. Should it be lowered to 18, 19, or 20? Should voting be compulsory for those above 21, but made optional for those from 18 to 20 years old? I would also suggest that political education or education about political concepts should also be considered in schools being taught in a more, met in a more methodical way. If there is a strong proclivity for lowering the voting age in Singapore. I would also suggest that lowering the voting age can strengthen social cohesion, deepen political communication, and enhance good governance, and perhaps even bridge the perceived intergenerational divide on socio-political issues. Looking ahead, youth and politics will continue to dominate local debates. And as politics continue to evolve, it becomes even more important to define in our local context what is a political youth or what comprises youth politics. Being a huge Liverpool football fan, we have this lyric, you'll never walk alone. And I'm glad they're doing very well, and long may that continue, even after Klopp leaves. In the same way, the youth of Singapore need not walk alone as we continue to shape collectively the future of inclusive politics in Singapore. Thank you for all for your kind attention. Thank you. Thank you, Mustafa. Uh, hopefully, we will all progress together and not walk alone as a society. So uh, let's have Sunkiet here to share his views. Thanks, Keiki. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank IPS for inviting me to this panel. I'm really honoured to be part of this esteemed panel today. So usually as a reporter, I'm in the audience listening to thought leaders and newsmakers um, trying to find a news angle. So it feels very different to be on stage today to share my views. And I apologise in advance if I offer nothing newsworthy to my colleagues at the back today. Um, I've been with Zaopao for over a decade. Um, 
no guess for how I am. So I started out as an intern, joined the local news desk full-time after university, um, did a three-year posting in Taiwan, moved to digital, and then I'm now back in local news um, covering defense and politics. So as a journalist, I have an interesting position watching how the government interacts with its citizens across um, different agency domains and citizen segments. It's a position underscored by trust. So in Singapore, we know that the government views the role of the media as a nation-building partner. So within this role, we do our best to present the news in a balanced way while respecting the unique sensitivities in Singapore. And there are plenty of sensitivities, right? So for issues that may not bear well in the public domain, um, the approach the government does is to take, um, to share these considerations and implications with the press in confidence. And this approach highlights a unique trust-based relationship um, that's in practice in Singapore. So that brings me to the key point of my sharing today, which is trust. Um, in a video you watched earlier, and as discussed by um, Dr. Mustafa as, as well as Dr. Alvin Ong, there are three aspects of trust, I believe, between government and youth. And for each of these, we have to look at it from both ways. So from the government's point of view, as well as the perspective of the youth. Number one, participation. Does the government trust the quality of ideas from our youth? On the other hand, do our youth trust the government to listen and act on their suggestions? Number two, Representation. Does the government trust that the youth will maintain and grow our current system, which, in its view, has been working for us? Conversely, do the youth trust the people who represent them, understand their lived experience and concerns? Three, voting age. Um, does the government trust that youth at 18 will not be emotional and short-term single-issue voters? And from the youth's point of view, do the youth trust the government to plan in their best interest? So let me go through each one, starting with participation. Um, the video touched on a common refrain among our youth, right? the perception that youth dialogues um, with the government are performative rather than substantive. Um, this undermines the trust in the government's receptiveness to young voices. Youth walk away feeling consulted, yes, but not heard. So this negative sentiment discourages them from joining other engagements, and as it takes root, discourages other youth from stepping up as well. Uh, as an observer, I think this is a matter of expectations and education. Government policies take very long to work through, and the list of stakeholders for any one issue often includes more than just one segment, which is the youth. So this makes it difficult for the individual citizen to see the direct line of impact from his idea to the final outcome. So what I believe is necessary is an understanding of the difference between thick and thin engagements on both sides. So thin engagements are low effort, large groups, and help to signal broad support. So examples range from signing petitions online to sharing on social media. Now thick engagements, on the other hand, are deep involvements among small groups, working through complex issues for clear policy outcomes. Now, an example of the youth panel, um, as mentioned in the video, is a good example, right? So you have a select group of youths that comes together, work out complex issues like climate change. So both government and youth would do well with a better understanding of both thick and thin engagement. Um, it would help calibrate the corresponding response. So if the dialogue is meant to be a thin engagement to get a sensing of youth sentiment, make that clear in the first place. Trust is eroded when youth expect their thin feedback to have the power of a thick engagement. 
Now, still on the topic of youth participation, um, another thing I feel to look at is to how to remove barriers of entry, especially psychological ones, and create channels for youth participation in such engagements. For example, are there enough access points for youths to step forward? What more can be done to promote a more inclusive recruitment of participants? Studies have shown that there's a strong preference among youths toward more intimate, closed group, face-to-face -face discussions on civic or political issues. The recent policy U-turn regarding SimpliGo simply shows that existing focus group formats and the way participants were selected leave something to be desired. And that brings me to the next aspect of trust, which is representation. Now, the issue of political representation has been highlighted by a few speakers in the video. Um, notably, we might see the ruling People's Action Party or even the Workers' Party field an openly LGBTQ candidate in, to appeal to the community. Now, um, I strongly believe that representation matters, but I would also caution that it is a convenient shorthand to expect someone who looks like you to hold similar views as you and to stand up for you. Such cognitive but superficial shortcuts flatten the complexities of a large group and often lead to future disappointments. So instead, trust, I feel, in our representatives might be improved if they regularly and consistently put out their position on various issues, communicate their values, and not just when it's politically convenient. So for example, you have members of parliament who regularly speak up for people with special needs, migrant workers, low families, and of course, and of course youths. So youths want to feel a connection with their representatives, to believe that they share their values and understand their lived experience. To put it simply, they want to know they have allies. And finally, the topic of voting age. Um, in my opinion, voting age is a red herring um, and should be considered within the broad, broader context of political maturity. Um, for example, why should our 18 to 18 to 20 year olds be liable to vote for so many things, right? Um, there's liability under the penal code, there's conscription for male uh, at age 18, but why are they not eligible to vote? Let me suggest that it's not just liability, but also maturity, and in particular, political maturity. The definitions may differ, but I think most people would agree that a politically mature electorate is not emotional, not short-term, and not myopic. Um, these are also the same negative labels that are sometimes ascribed to our youth, right? So, like, for example, we have YOLO, lying flat, strawberry generation. In case that gets quoted out of context, um, let me say quite clearly that these are not enduring traits. These things can change. Um, but the fact of the matter is that political maturity can be cultivated. And for example, through the communication of facts, say, how does the political system work? How does the constitution work? Um, why do we adopt a Westminster style of a parliament, right? And B, understanding the trade-offs. Say, what do we need to give up if we want to mitigate the impact of climate change? These things, this sort of education should start before 18, if we indeed need to, or if, if we indeed are looking at lowering voting age. For example, might we get students to watch parliamentary proceedings in class? Um, it's available on YouTube, and with teachers' help, I think this would be a direct exposure to how their representatives convey their positions in parliament. Or might we encourage more youths to participate in online discussions on key issues or topics facilitated by youth content creators in collaboration with youth organisations? These are just um, some suggestions I have, but I trust that the policymakers have a better idea on how we might prepare our youth um, if we bring them into the voting population so that they can, they can make rational choices that have an impact not just on them, but also on the rest of us.
So let me return to the main point of my sharing today and bring this to a close. Um, trust is a fundamental part of any relationship. It is an ongoing effort to build up and maintain trust on both sides, government and youth. So even if we do adopt some of these suggestions to build up the political maturity of our youth and to be clear about what we expect from different thick and thin engagements, these cannot be one-off initiatives. So we need to re constantly revisit how we build trust with different groups of youth as they age into the electorate. So thank you all for your kind attention. Thank you, Sun Kiet. Um, that was a lot of things for us to think about. And I think all three panelists have uh, thrown out actually a lot of hard questions for us to consider when it comes to youth and politics, or maybe just politics alone. But I think that also fits in with our theme because being youthful also means that you are constantly learning, being inquisitive. So I think these questions actually help us move along and uh, do help us uh, think a bit more about what kind of society do we want? What kind of society does youths aspire to? And I think now we can start uh, the session for Q&A. And uh, I would just like to inform attendees that uh, to ask the Q&A, you can actually come up to the mics available on, uh, in the ballroom or use the Pigeonhole app, which you can find from the QR code on your tags. Uh, yes. So please come up and ask your questions avidly, but as moderator, I will start the ball rolling. So um, I do have a question for panelists. Given all you have seen and observed so far in your work uh, on politics in Singapore, what do you think, uh, is there any difference in what youths want in politicians or uh, policies compared to genera generations above them? And does it matter? Does anybody want to start? So okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, so um, at SPH, um, so I come from Chinese media group at SPH. Um, we have a platform called Hey Kaki. That's a youth-facing platform um, with a target audience of, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, my colleagues, 18 to 25s, um, young working adults as well. Um, so when we do, when we go about con producing content for this group of um, 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 audience um, will convene panels um, to have a test of like what topics stick, uh, what topics or what issues are, are they concerned about. So um, we have lots of issues like pop, um, politics, um, climate change, sustainability, cost of living. But interestingly, um, one of the top few issues um, that they are genuinely interested and really concerned about is cost of living, housing affordability, financial security, as well as relationship problems. So, um, is, um, how to date, um, how to do well in relationships is actually one of our um, highly ranked video um, genre in, on, our, on our platform. So, as you, so as you, can, you can see that um, the topics that youths are generally interested in are quite... Um, focused on the individual, right? Um, they are more concerned about their future, um, what's at stake for them. Are they able to get good paying jobs? Are they able to afford homes in the future when they start working? Um, are they able to get uh, married uh, if they want to? So I think these are issues which um, our youths are thinking about. And um, so for, ex so, so for, um, for polit politicians to... Um, 
engage them. I think it would do well if they actually work on these issues um, together with the youths. I think um, they need to give them more space um, for youths to um, express their ideas on, in these areas that they're concerned about. Okay, so mostly bread and butter from what you see. Okay. Yeah, uh, just to latch on to his, uh, some of his ideas, my general sense is that what youths want are not necessarily different from what non-youths want. They just want a government that works for them. And this is just might be the case that some issues are a little bit more salient. Mm. Uh, for example, say maybe climate change, uh, housing affordability, uh, as compared to other uh, issues out there. And the second difference might just be in their calculation of the trade-offs. Uh, they may be willing to make some trade-offs which uh, the older generation might pursue differently. So a very simple example could be, yes, they may be willing to pay more to uh, use plastic bags from the supermarket. They may be willing to pay more uh, for the higher price of oil, higher price of petrol, uh, to pay for a higher carbon tax, whereas perhaps some of the older generation uh, might not necessarily resolve the trade-off, uh, be less willing accepted, uh, be less willing to accept the trade-offs uh, in terms of costs. Right? So I, I think those uh, are the two ways in which their opinions might differ, but ultimately they just want the government to make a decision and to make things work. So, uh, in, in a way, they prioritise what they can give up would be different. Yeah. Okay. Mustafa? I think some issues cut across generations. I think the, the question is how do they deal with those issues? So, uh, so they think differently, perhaps. They may, uh, they may interpret it differently. But they also look at issues that matter very personally to them. But they also look at issues that... Uh, that are important globally as well. Okay. So, and that could be, uh, as an, it can be attributed to the consumption of information over social media. So that's one. Second is that the older generation, the younger generation, or across, across generations, I think the, the issue, when it comes to political issues, I, I think they are, there are more diversity than there are sort of uh, there are more con there are more divergences than there are convergences. That's my my sense. But that doesn't mean it is bad. It's just a question of where do you find your, I suppose where where, where you find most comfortable. Mm. Uh, so my sensing, as far as uh, answering a question goes, is that there are similarities across the different uh, across the generations, but how to interpret it could be different. All right, so it's a, again, matter of interpretation and reading the situation differently. So maybe I'll open up the panel to uh, questions here first. There is a gentleman there. Hi, I'm Seng Hao from Diamond High School. So I think there is an increasing desire for more check and balances in our legislative body by, say, having more diverse representation of Singaporeans in parliament. So how can we strike a balance between having check and balances in our political system and maintaining political stability and efficiency, which is often correlated to homogeneity in parliament in Singapore? Thank you. Thank you. So 
check and balance versus stability. I think this is a common refrain that usually comes up in Singapore politics. So what do you guys think? So I'm actually writing a paper um, on politics in Singapore where we have this constant urge to find a balance. We want the balance between checks and balances and political stability. We want to <laughs> find a balance between uh, giving people their views, uh, but preserving, giving space for people to have their views, but preserving uh, uh, sensitivities at the same time. Uh, I think the idea, the very idea of trying to strike a balance uh, is kind of like a trap. It sucks you to, uh, to, to, to use the phrase uh, of my friend, um, Dr. Shannon Ang, uh, is, it sucks you into this vortex whereby you are constantly torn between these two extremes and you actually can't make a decision. Uh, I think we should just choose one side. Just choose one side. Um, not necessarily choose one side, but maybe a better way to think about it is just get the results that we have and then just work with it. There's, there's no need to feel uh, um, uh, such a dilemma over whether there's a need to uh, navigate between two extremes. You just work with what you have. Okay, uh, what do the others think? Do you think there is even a dilemma between these two? I mean, for me, if you want to have more checks and balances, first you've got to define what that means. What exactly is been mentioned? What are you balancing against? And what are you checking for? For me, it's uh, make, your word f make your word count. Right? So if you feel very strongly about a particular issue and a particular candidate reflects your sentiments, then go out, vote, and perhaps even lobby for your cause. Uh, and I think, you know, and there are different ways of trying to find checks and balances. One is, of course, you have in Parliament itself, and you also have outside, outside Parliament. So it, uh, it, I mean, as you're looking at youth and politics, so for youth, one is obviously you've got social media that's often a, a zone or an area by which a number of, uh, political discussion takes place. That sort of balances out. I suppose there can be a check and balance there. One. Second, as I mentioned earlier, just make your vote count. And, and I think uh, those who want your vote will have to work really hard, even harder, to, to align themselves with what your aspirations are. So I think in time you'll find that uh, uh, you know, the checks and balances that you are looking for may, may be attainable. But I think right now that there is a system in place and uh, there are systems for checks and balances, a question of whether that is enough or more should be done. And I think that should be just an open-ended uh, question that's difficult to answer. Okay. Mm. What about you? Um, I feel the call for checks and balance, one reason could be because um, people are not seeing the diversity of views within the ruling party. Um, and it shouldn't be that way, right? Given that it's the biggest political party, it has people of all stripes um, from all walks of life. But the fact that the diversity is not um, it doesn't shine through, it doesn't come through to, to the population, so that 
in a way that people think that, oh, okay, um, the ruling party is homogenous, it's, there's uniformity in views and approach. And I feel only when there's a vibrant exchange of ideas that's shown to the public, I think in a way it would um, satisfy the public in a way that there's, because there's diversity of view within a ruling party, um, there will be checks and balance uh, present um, in that kind of uh, mechanism as well. Okay. Just to add one more point is, you know, the political uh, party system that works in our legislature is that uh, party members have to abide by party discipline, right? Uh, and that's the party whip for a reason. So uh, even if within the party there may be diverse views, uh, they have to toe the party line. And so it is, uh, I don't think it's necessarily their fault um, that the a political party doesn't uh, necessarily kind of be able to express the, that diverse views because ultimately they have to take a stand. Right? And uh, it's just a functioning of the political system that you know, political parties have to uh, abide by some kind of uh, party discipline. Okay, so but just want to get a quick reaction from the three of you to delve a bit further. What about stability? since that was the other choice? I mean, you've got to look at, the, look at what you have right now. And I think it's, uh, it's difficult to argue against there not being political stability. I think that is. I think it just goes back to the point about whether the diversity is enough and what kind of diversity you want in parliament. See if, uh, I would also say, I mean, we have this term that goes around on self check on self, right? Uh, and whether that will continue to be, the, the, you know, the, the debate that takes place, or I think then it would be incumbent, particularly where since there is a dominant party in parliament, that they would need to find ways where that uh, diversity of views are far more prevalent, uh, and that uh, they are able to reflect the sentiments. Uh, of their constituents in parliament. So I think that freedom to express their views in parliament, I think adds to that check and balance. So if you have a system where it is a dominant party, then you'll have to find ways that within that, uh, that mechanism you allow for such uh, diversity of views, I guess. That's probably the way I would look at it. And I, I go back to my point earlier. I mean, if you want to get, you want to have more checks and balances, you, you need to get more people into parliament that reflects your views. That doesn't mean you work for one party over the other just because it's party in, party in government, you work for the opposition. Or you work for the opposition, but not the party in parliament. I think it's all about, sorry, party in government, I think it's all about whether they reflect your sentiments, they reflect your views, they reflect your aspirations. Okay, representation. Just one point to add on, right? Um, so I agree with Dr. Ong about the party line, but not all things really concern the party line. So for example, if you take the recent Simply Go controversy, um, so it took two weeks for... Um, the MOT and LTA to reverse the decision, right? Be um, after um, like so many complaints and feedback from the ground. And it's only after um, the minister announced the reversal that um, the PP MPs started um, saying that, oh, they actually feel it's not right to ask that the one third of um, card users to move to the new system. Then um, so a lot of my peers, as well as um, um, interviewees, were asking, 
where were they when, when people were complaining? Mm. Do you only come out and say that you're not in favour of this policy after um, the government has said that it will reverse its decision? So I feel, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure that um, politi politicians, members of parliament are well tapped onto the ground, you know, they've got the feelers, they've got the ears on the ground. But I think um, to be more responsive, um, to voice their true opinion um, without fear or favour, uh, I think it, it, would be, it would be for the better of the youths as well as the society. Thank you. So maybe uh, I'll move on to the next question maybe, first. Uh, sorry, uh, before we move on, let me just take Both that okay. question on political stability much more directly. Thank you. Let me just... Let's imagine, hypothetically, theoretically, right, that, being, that day may never come, but maybe it will come, that the PAP does not win the next general election, and that, let's say, hypothetically, theoretically, it is the Workers' Party who wins the majority in Parliament. Now, in that scenario, why would there not necessarily be political stability? Uh, I would like to hear from the audience if they have any opinions. <laughs> but, you know, my, in my opinion, right, uh, the, the lack of political stability in that scenario might not necessarily be an automatic thing. Hmm, okay, so more on the institutions beyond yeah. partisan politics. Yeah, and we, we have the reserve presidency that yeah. provides some uh, uh, stabilizing force to the political system. That's right, so maybe we'll have the next question. Thank you. Yeah, Go thanks in. very much. Uh, my name is Paul Tambaya. I'm from the medical school, and again, my question is my own. Uh, I'd like to uh, take you up on this uh, stability argument because uh, I think most people would favor a diversity of views because it works. Uh, the empiric evidence seems to suggest the most politically stable societies in the world today are the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and Cuba, which are hardly role models for, uh, I mean, you don't see people trying to emigrate into, uh, you know, slip through the border into Cuba or to uh, DPRK. So there are far more people going into countries which are more diverse and have checks and balances and stuff like that. But to make it a question, the question then is, uh, if we all agree that diversity of views is a good thing and politics, and you should get involved in politics, do you think there'll come a day when we could have a young PAP chapter in NUS, NTU, SMU, or Singapore Poly, or, or Republic Poly, uh, and similarly a WP Youth Wing or Young Democrats? And, and if not, why not? Thank you. Thank you. So politically aware youth who actually organize for parties. Will there be a day where that happens? Uh, I think What's the you should good direct thing? that question to the MOE <laughs> officer uh, who is in the audience, right? Who will direct the question upwards. So perhaps to uh, make it easier to answer, I will move on to a top-voted online question that also asks about education. So how can local school curriculum and policy be changed to educate youth about global politics and act facilitate activism? Is the government prepared to handle the politically aware youth? Sorry. 
<laughs> is there a need for education <laughs> to make people more politically aware at the school level? You know, in terms of political education or political maturity, I think having any sort of curriculum that explains the basic structure of how our political system works, uh, any sort of curriculum that allows students to be able to make sense of uh, comparative political systems, why some political systems may work in some, some countries as compared to others, uh, that always helps, right? And actually, at NUS, Department of Political Science, you know, we study comparative political system. Uh, I'm in the subfield of comparative politics, and uh, that's uh, comparative political system is basically all that we do, right? So any sort of curriculum uh, that MOE wants to put out there in terms of political education or political maturity is uh, always welcome. But what I would say is that I hope that political education or political maturity is not seen as a barrier to access to the vote. Right? Because there's no way to measure political education or political maturity and then you say, okay, by these measures, you are mature and you are educated and therefore we allow you to vote. The, the, the vote cannot be uh, given or taken away based on some abstract measure of maturity or education. I hope that, that there wouldn't be any day where we go to the police station and then the police station officer says, oh, stop. Are you educated enough? Are you politically mature enough? If you are, then we'll allow you to vote, right? That, that simply just doesn't make sense. And if you think about in the past, you know, 100 years before where women were trying to get the right to vote, uh, where, you know, African-Americans were trying to get the right to vote, what were the uh, arguments used against them? Well, the arguments used against them for getting the vote is you are not politically educated enough, you're not politically mature enough, and that's why you don't deserve to vote. I think we should have moved past uh, that kind of uh, sense of uh, arbitrary measure. Thank you. Yes, Mustafa, I see you have something to say. <laughs> I think maybe to answer the first part of the question, the second part, I think, mentioned we will put it on the back burner for the, for the time being. I think the first part I would contend that stability without diversity is not sustainable. Okay. So I think we should uh, champion diversity of views because the more there are diversity of views, the greater there will be political stability and the more sustainable it will be. So I think stability has to go hand in hand with diversity of views, first point. Second, I think on your question or the one that's being put forward is the most voted, whether government can deal with more politically aware youth. I don't think the question of whether whether they can deal, they have to deal with it. Um, I think you do see trends uh, that are changing, social political trends. So the, gov the government has to be ahead of the curve and uh, be able to suss out and be cognizant of what these trends are. So, and being political aware is not a bad thing. I think the more you uh, have, uh, the more you get yourself immersed and internalized, in, in, you know, immerse yourself in politics, the more you have a stake in your country. So I think on that point, I think for the, gov for the government, I think it's not about whether they can deal, I think they should deal with it because uh, 
and dealing with it in a way, challenging it to something that's positive, that it actually enhances good governance. And I think that should be the approach to be taken. Thank you. Yes, okay. Um, I think on the topic of curriculum, <clears throat> I, think it's a, I think it should be a conversation that should be had between the relevant ministries as well as the youth, right? They should decide on what they want to learn. Um, but I would also caution that um, if you were to institutionalize it, um, who wields that tool? Um, would it be used as a political tool to further one party's political interests and agenda? Um, would it be used to indoctrinate certain kinds of ideology or stance? I feel these are certain areas that we need to keep in mind about if we were to look at how to improve political education or even to implement political education in the current system. Okay, basically to keep political education, if there is, stable, despite partisanship. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have a question there. Hello, panelists. Uh, my name is Jensen Buriarto. Uh, I'm from UWC Southeast Asia uh, campus. Um, I have a question uh, directed to all three panelists. Uh, so, young Singaporeans usually enlist to NS after high school or when they are around 18 years old. And assuming that they are eligible to vote, uh, do you think NS would affect their political exposure and their ability to uh, make rational decisions uh, when voting? Thank you, uh, NS, and whether it will affect their considerations. All of you should have served before, so... <laughs> It's been such a long time ago. <laughs> Some personal recollections, perhaps? I, I, I think I would, I would say national service gives you a, a very unique uh, experience. Now, whether that is channeled to politics depends on what you're interested in, whether you're passionate about it. But certainly it gives you a sense of maturity uh, in, uh, in consuming information. And uh, so if you are passionate about politics, and I think national service, I think does give you the platform by which you can make uh, better choices, I guess, or be more mature in the way you interpret, inter in, interpret information or political information. So I think uh, whether or not it, it helps depends on one, whether you're passionate about politics, and second, yes, I think what you gain out of uh, national service does help you to become more politically uh, more politically informed if that's what you're passionate about. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I think some people say that uh, with regards to national service, it's a process whereby boys turn into men, right? And I think uh, actually having the ability to vote while doing a national service is probably a great thing uh, in the sense that during national service, you're supposed to learn the importance of the country's defence, you're entrusted with the safety and security of your fellow countrymen and how you're supposed to defend your country from all external threats out there. And that probably builds within uh, the people who have gone through national service a much more greater sense of the gravity of uh, this country that we call home and would therefore make much more, uh, give, give um, the people who have gone through national service a much more kind of serious consideration about what their vote would actually entail and mean uh, in choosing 
the legislative uh, representative as well as the next uh, government. So I think uh, actually the aims of national service uh, is very much um, conforms with the idea of how we think uh, citizens should take their votes uh, very seriously. I would also add that being in national service doesn't mean that you're not attuned to what's going on in your community or on a society level. Almost everyone's on social media, so I'm, and that's where most um, young people um, consume information. So I believe, um, given, given that everyone's so well, um, you know, like, consumer and daily user of social media, I, I don't suppose uh, being in national service would make you less politically aware or even socially aware. Okay, thank mm. you. So I'm really liking how everything is coinciding. There's no planting of questions. Um, but here we have one of the top voted questions which uh, ask about gender differences. So apparently, uh, the, there's a Gallup data that has, is showing that young women are becoming more progressive and young men are more conservative. So do you see this kind of uh, gender diversity or divergence in Singapore as well? Yeah, so I also saw that uh, Gallup poll uh, data that was uh, shared, I think, on Twitter and went viral uh, for a couple of days. So uh, the one thing we have to ask ourselves is why, right? Why do we see such patterns in the data showing that women are becoming more progressive and uh, men are becoming, uh, young men are becoming much more uh, conservative? And one of the reasons that was offered in some of the latest research out there is that uh, there is labor market competition from well-educated women, and the men feel threatened. <laughs> and therefore, they become more politically conservative. Uh, and women want to be treated uh, much more progressively and have much more equal opportunities in the labor market, and therefore, they become uh, much more uh, ideologically progressive. So it really boils down to, is there uh, gender competition in the labour market, uh, and whether women uh, and men face different uh, barriers for uh, career progression. I think in Singapore, we have uh, generated enough jobs so that uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen who graduate from universities or graduate from uh, instit other institutes of higher uh, learning uh, do not necessarily feel that they are in competition with one another in terms of gender. So uh, that divergence may not necessarily be seen uh, in Singapore, but uh, in order to answer that question comprehensively, I'll have to go back and dig into the data. Yeah, definitely we will need the, to let the data speak, but maybe some ground observations from uh, Sunkit, perhaps? Mm. Differences between gender. Mm. I feel that um, there are differences, um, it's inevitable that everyone, um, especially in if you look at it from the gender lens of, through the gender lens, um, the fact is that everyone's lived experience is different. So um, if, if we were to factor in the lived experience, um, con conventional wisdom or conventionally we would, would feel that um, women tend to face more discrimination. So um, I think that is why um, being, that, being in that position, it would um, be a driving force for them to be more progressive in ideals. Um, but um, 
yeah, that would be my observation. Thank you. Uh, anything to add? So I agree with both of them. <laughs> okay, let's take a question from the floor then. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Darius from Cultivate, a non-profit organization. And we know that youth are not politically or ideologically monolithic. So my question to all panelists is this, how would you guard against political or ideological polarization among youth as they become more politically aware and active? And how do you prevent a kind of us versus them attitude from taking root? Thank you. Thank you. Polarization, it's quite an important thing to think about, especially with so many diverse views coming up these days. Any thoughts? Mustafa? Okay. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I think we do see the trend of political polarization. The question is, uh, what do we do about it? I think one way to overcome it is, of course, through education. And, uh, and I think as much as there is uh, this polarization, there's also ways to overcome polarization by reading the right material, by consuming the right information, uh, by uh, being able, by also being able to look at people who have the, the knowledge, the political knowledge to say, okay, this is polarizing, this is not. So I think the way that we can overcome it, one is through education. Second is to look at, uh, see, the thing about social media as well is that there's always, uh, there's one view, there's a counter view. So that uh, marketplace of ideas helps to, you know, helps to overcome or helps to push back on uh, polarization. The second. Third, I think it's, it's not much talked about, but I think it's important that those who are passionate about, about politics, uh, it's, it's good to also look at ways that there could be something I described, uh, can be described as political mentorship, right? So in other words, you have those who are able to glean, are able to interpret politics in a way that's uh, productive, that's constructive, that's positive, that avoids polarization. So having someone who perhaps just started to understand politics and have someone who's knowledgeable about politics, having that kind of mentorship can help also to overcome polarization. So I think, and also the other thing, I think political polarization is here to stay. I mean, it's going to, going to be there. Uh, it's a question of whether can you manage it. Or, in my view, I think here in Singapore, and we talk about stability, we talk about diversity of views, and I think there are also enough safeguards in place to guard against political polarization. Now, if you're looking at political polarization in the sense that uh, people have different ideological opinions, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that adds to the diversity of views. But I think at the end of it is, what is it you're trying to achieve? You may be polarizing your views, but are you, what are you doing it for? Is it, is it to uh, uplift society? Is it to help uh, improve policy making? What, what is your end goal? I think that's just as important a question as overcoming or talking about what political polarization entails. Thank you. Any thoughts from the other two panelists? So, in terms of political polarization, uh, one way to think about it is why do we see political polarization in the first place? Right? 
And then if you understand why, then you can potentially think about the intervention. And from actually some of the research that has come out uh, in the past few years, uh, the general kind of conclusion is that people don't just become polarized because they want to be polarized, right? In actual reality, um, the electorate becomes more polarized because political parties and political leaders become more polarized first, right? Then they stoke the fires of polarization uh, for their political advantage. Right? And it is to their political advantage to uh, create divisions, uh, us versus them, uh, kind of distinctions within society. So really, the, if you believe in this particular kind of explanation, then uh, you would have to look at you know, uh, our political parties and political leaders, uh, why they would um, do such polarizing things in the first place, what are their incentives to do so. And it's really incumbent on the political leaders and the political uh, leadership, if they want to prevent societal polarization, to be centrist, right? To stick to the middle ground so they can, and to sell the, their ideology to be as inclusive into the middle ground as much as possible. So if you want to kind of like find fault, um, the fault is not necessarily with the electorate, it's with the political leaders, elites, uh, and political parties in the first place. Can I just add a quick point? I think if, if you want to win elections in Singapore, you should engage less in polarization. And as been mentioned, the middle ground is a very important part of how the, how the, what electoral outcome will be. So the more you polarize, the, m the more likely you're going to be losing the middle ground. That's one. And second, I think, as, as I've mentioned, the more you polarize, then it, you, you see you are not really doing something productive or doing something in the end that comes out as constructive. So, for, as, so the point I'm making really here is that, as I mentioned earlier, polarization is going to happen. But the more we engage in polarization, I think the, the less it will be for, for good governance in Singapore. Thanks. Okay. Um, well, it pains me to say that coming from a traditional media, right, that a lot of our youths are turning to um, online content creators. Um, so um, I, th I think a way to actually prevent um, polarization from taking root is actually to work with these content creators right, because it's actually one of the first um, avenues that our youths turn to when they want to find out more about social issues. Um, so I think um, there's, um, there's space for either the government or whoever is in charge to leverage these content creators to create a space, a safe space for these youths to express themselves um, and to also be quick to respond when you know, things take a, a darker turn. Yes, I think uh, social media is probably quite an important area, especially since this morning we have seen on the poll results where actually three in five have had some kind of civic activity which includes interacting with online posts. So um, perhaps to move on a little bit to an online question now, um, there is a question on youth apathy. So um, 
this is a combined question. Uh, there is a question on whether this perception of apathy amongst the youths is because of inaccessibility or avoid, uh, forbiddance of political activism. And how can youths speak up when they are clearly penalised in intangible ways? So basically, there seems to be a feeling of disempowerment in this question. Um, how would you respond to that? So is the question saying that youths are apathetic? Uh, yes, so there is a perception of youth apathy. So they are asking, is it because they are not allowed to take part in political activism? Well, many people are politically apathetic. So to single out youths, I think, would be to blame them a, a bit too much, right? I, I think in Singapore, life is very complicated. You have to be like, you know, uh, outstanding in your career. You have been outstanding uh, with your family. You have to be a good civic citizen. You have to uh, be not politically apathetic. You must know all the ins and outs of uh, uh, why the uh, government uh, is doing certain things. And um, it's almost as if like an ordinary voter has to be, like a, has to fit some kind of like ideal model citizen uh, uh, model. Um, but, you know, life can be complicated, as I always tell my students, and you don't necessarily have to fit yourself into a um, particular uh, kind of uh, uh, boxes. Mm. And um, I'm not necessarily sure where there is evidence for youth political apathy. Uh, I think many people are apathetic. Uh, within this room, I think the, the levels of apathy are very low, but maybe outside of this room, uh, Across generations, um, you know, not, not everyone's lives are consumed by politics. Okay, so politics is just one facet. Which, of a complicated life. Which you may like or don't like. Yeah. Be involved or not. Okay. I, I think political apathy can be a matter of choice. So if someone chooses to be political apathy, then I think we should respect that choice. I think the, the issue is when there is the, you know, the numbers of people who are political apathetic increases exponentially. Then we have to see what the causes are. But if you have a diversity of those who, are who have social political apathy, those who are more politically aware, those who want not just want to be politically informed, but also want to analyze politics, want to be a part of it, then I think we should allow for that diversity to play out. So that's one. Second, I think we, it's, it's difficult to also uh, agree to this, this notion that there's political apathy because there's lack of information. I think now there is a plethora of information. And I think, so it's, in fact, if anything, social media should be reducing political apathy. But some people are political apathy by choice and also because they feel, as been mentioned, they feel disempowered. And this is where I think it's important to look at the cause, I mean, how, why are they disempowered and maybe perhaps do something about it. But those who want to be political apathy by choice, I think we should respect that. Okay. Um, I think protesting is but one form of being politically active. Right. There are so many forms of being active politically. So, for example, um, 
to be fair, I think the government is taking, doing a lot, taking a lot of steps to hear ground feedback. For example, there's this launch of this new platform called CrowdTask SG, where you fill in um, surveys, forms, uh, throw in on ideas, and again, you get um, some credits back. So it's a way of um, um, encouraging participation. So um, my, th my observation would be, or rather my, my, my view would be, be more active, join, take part in all these um, feedback gathering sessions, um, feedback gathering um, efforts, uh, make a voice heard. Um, I think that's one very good way of being active politically. Yeah. Okay, basically put yourself out there. Yes. Okay, I see a lady over there. Yes. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Belle from Anglo-Chinese School Independent. Um, this question is mostly directed to Dr. Mustafa and Mr. Ng. I think um, Mr. Ng mentioned creating safe spaces online for youth to discuss politics. So how can we exactly create platforms for constructive debate on politics? And should we um, encourage such controversial discussions? I think Dr. Mustafa also shared an insight on how the government needs to cope with increasing political awareness among the youth. So I wanted to ask, how can we achieve the balance between stability and diversity of opinions? I think that, that would have been a balance. repeat of the question just now, but we can take the question on how do you create a constructive area to debate politics? Um, well, I'm no online content creator myself, so I'm not sure you know, from their point of view, what's the best way to conduct it. But um, I feel as content creators, um, you know, be, apart from creating content, I, I think you also hold the important role of um, holding the court, um, managing exchange of ideas, um, stepping in when someone um, flouts the rule of engagement, um, within the conversations. So I feel, um, so in that regard, I think content creators can play a more active role um, to assure that its followers um, are operating in a, in a closed but intimate as well as safe space, you know, whenever they comment, even anonymously. Thank you. And I think our time is up. So thank you very much for participating actively in this conversation. I think we have seen that empowerment and education is two of the main themes that have come up today in our panel on youth and politics. And I thank you all again very much for being such an attentive audience. And uh, we'll see you for the next session. Thank you.